Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, March 12th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off today with the article, Lots to Become Available Near Orange Elementary School and Waterloo's Largest Residential Project in Years. Acres of open land surrounding Orange Elementary School will soon be sold by the plot for by construction of what the president of Cedar Valley Home Builders Association calls Waterloo's largest residential development project in at least 20 years. The first 64 of the eventual 240 to 250 lots of the Paradise Estates subdivision could become available as soon as the middle of April. CJ's Construction, the land developer, hopes to wrap up the platting process this month, and sales would close around September, while groundwork gets underway and infrastructure is installed. The subdivision was approved by Waterloo City Council in 2018. This is just going to increase the pie and give people more options on where they want to live. This is a stone's throw from the VGM and Mercy One. Both employers are excited to have options when they recruit, said Bob Manning, president of the Cedar Valley Home Builders Association. When plans were announced during the Cedar Valley Housing Conference at the Bean Venue Events Center in Cedar Falls earlier this month. The 121 acre subdivision along Kimball Avenue, north, south, and east of the school, is owned by Hope Martin Buzz Anderson. It's a big need for Waterloo. It's an area where the census found the population to be so high, but you have no lots for sale, said Corey. Hodap, owner of the North Liberty-based CJ's Construction. CJ's has been working with the city and Waterloo Community Schools to finalize plans, which will include a bus lane through the subdivision to alleviate Kimball Avenue traffic, a concern voiced by the Orange Neighborhood Association. The future single-family homes could be anything from ranch and two-story houses to split foyers with decent-sized backyards and parking for two or three cars. Waterloo City documents describe the first 64 lots being 14,057 to 21,787 square feet. Melissa Hodap, company broker, anticipates the lots being sold in the 70,000s to 90,000s range with houses that would later be built and sold for upwards of 350,000. It will be a nice walkable subdivision with cul-de-sacs, she said, adding that it was a project that a couple of other people had tried to take on and do some things with. She said CJ's was able to make it happen with the help of various stakeholders whom she described as great to work with. The company does not anticipate developing any of the lots on its own. If it does, the plan would include a few of them. Most of the company's work can be found in and around Iowa City and Cedar Rapids. The southern edge of Waterloo has continued to see growth around the Isle Casino and Lost Island theme park and water park. In fact, the Lost Island franchise sold Western Home Communities 53 acres at the corner of Laporte and East Chalice Roads for future senior and elderly housing. Now on to a very different article. Man dead, women injured in Sumner after standoff with authorities. A Sumner man allegedly shot and injured his wife and then turned the gun on himself Friday during an hours-long standoff that caused the Sumner-Fredericksburg Community School District to cancel classes. 
Bremer County Sheriff deputies identified the deceased as 65-year-old Bruce Kuhlman. His wife, Sharon, 58, was treated at a community memorial hospital and then flown to University of Iowa hospitals and clinics in Iowa City. She was in stable condition, according to the deputies. The incident started around 7.30 a.m. when Sumner Police Chief Dan Wegg responded to a disturbance at the home at 212 W6th Street and heard several gunshots coming from behind the home. Sharon Kuhlman emerged from around the side of the house. She was suffering from gunshot wounds. Bruce Kuhlman was found with a gun, which he refused to drop, according to the sheriff's office. Officers from other agencies were sent to the home. In the ensuing standoff, Kuhlman fired multiple shots into the air and refused to surrender. Authorities attempted to negotiate with him for four hours before the members of the Iowa State Patrol's area Sea Tactical Team moved in and found him dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Bruce Kuhlman was transported to the Iowa office of the State Medical Examiner for an autopsy. The school district, which was already on a two-hour late start, posted a message to social media indicating that due to the situation, people should stay away from Durant Elementary School and the high school, which are each located on West 6th Street, several blocks away from where the standoff occurred. The administration later canceled school. The Sumner Police Department was assisted by Bremer County Sheriff's Office, Bremer County Dispatch, Iowa State Patrol, Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, Fayette County Sheriff's Office, Chickasaw County Sheriff's Office, Waverly Police, Tripola Police, Fayette Police Department, Iowa Department of Transportation, MVE, SEMS, Community Memorial Hospital, Gunderson Air, Sumner Fire, Tripola EMS, Bremer County Emergency Management, and Bremer County Medical Examiner's Office. Now on to another article. Volunteers needed. Junior achievement needs to fill ranks for April session at Waterloo Schools. Scott Evans feels a sense of pride in students he works with at Waterloo Community Schools. Once a week for five weeks, he steps into an elementary school classroom to help students understand how money works, the importance of education and financial literacy for future career success, and what it means to start and run a business. Evans isn't a teacher. He's a John Deere engine, a John Deere engineer and volunteer for Junior Achievement in Eastern Iowa. It's rewarding and fun to work with kids and see the light bulbs go off in their heads when they begin to get what you're talking about, Evans said. J.A. relies on volunteers to teach its curriculum. Evans has devoted 14 years to supporting the nonprofit organization that provides activity-based curriculum to kindergarten through 8th grade students based on an agreement with the school district. Now, the organization is seeking 30 volunteers to fill a need in the kindergarten and first grade classrooms beginning in April for the remainder of the school year, said J.A.'s education manager, Beth Horan. Anyone interested should apply by the end of March at the JA website, easterniowa.ja.org. Like many charities across the country, COVID-19 curtailed volunteer activities and dealt a blow to Junior Achievement's volunteer roster. Volunteers weren't allowed in schools in 2021, and since returning to the classroom in 2022, the organization has been rebuilding its pool of volunteers. It's been challenging, Haran acknowledged, but other nonprofits are experiencing the same challenges. She hopes appealing to the community-minded companies and individuals will attract new or returning volunteers. 
No experience is required, Haran said. JA provides training and curriculum, including activities that are specific to each grade level. We want volunteers from a variety of backgrounds. We're looking for volunteers who are willing to share stories about themselves, to enrich the lives of students who bring excitement and energy into classrooms, and are passionate about ensuring students have a good foundation as they continue to grow, with the idea of being successful after high school, she said. JA has volunteers from the financial community come has has volunteers from the financial community because of our focus on financial literacy. But we also have teachers, housemen, homemakers, small business owners, and other community minded individuals from all walks of life. Many companies like Principal Financial Group encourage their employees to volunteer in their communities. Cassie Creighton, who is a relationship associate in customer care, at principal, began volunteering with JA about eight years ago. The experience has been fulfilling. I enjoy it every year, Creighton said. Although she's worked with kindergartners and fifth graders, the first graders have her heart. It's neat to see their interest. These young students catch on so fast and are willing to learn. At this age, the curriculum helps them understand the value of money and how to tell the difference between their wants and their needs, she said. Evans taught J.A. at several elementary schools, including Fred Becker, Kingsley, and Lou Henry, where he has been for the last seven years. Two of his six children are still in elementary school, so I tend to follow my, my kids. Other kids remi- remember you from the last years, and that's great. I ask them questions about themselves and try to share a little bit about what I do, he said. He believes that J.A. is an important tool for classroom teachers. It's a great introduction to managing money, saving and using credit and debit cards, Evans said. Kids are also encouraged to think about what kind of business they would start. You can see them light up when they're talking about it. It's important for kids to be inspired about their future. JA provides the lessons, materials, talking points, and training in person or virtually, Horan said. Volunteers are asked to provide their time, stories, and to share enthusiasm to share and enthusiasm. There are games and projects to engage the children's interest. We give volunteers the teaching kits with everything they need and volunteers are always in the kitchen during the lessons. Volunteers are in the classroom for 30 to 45 minutes once a week for five or six weeks. And they spend about that much time prepping for the class, Horan explained. Volunteers are seen as mentors by students and someone who cares about their success. From a, from a JA curriculum perspective, volunteers ensure that students have an understanding of real-life situations outside of what is normally covered in the classroom, Haran said. For Creighton, one of, her best, one of her best rewards is seeing the excitement in the faces of the children and feeling like you're part of that, she explained. Walking into a classroom for the first time can be a little scary and intimidating, especially if you're unfamiliar with the age group, Evan said but you have a good lesson plan to follow, so just go for it and make your own and take the opportunity to inspire young children. They're our future, and we can help prepare them for that future, he added. Now on to another article. Bill Beck named next Waterloo Fire Chief. Battalion Chief Bill Beck has been named the new Fire Chief of Waterloo. He started with the fire department in 2004 and now will be sworn in at 3.30 p.m. Tuesday at the City Howell Council Chambers, succeeding Pat Trelore, 
Trelaw retired as the fire chief at the end of last year, after 25 years with Waterloo Fire Rescue. Battalion Chief Troy Luck has been serving as chief in the interim. This is an incredible opportunity, and I am excited to share my time and talents with the, city, the citizens of Waterloo, Beck said. In a statement, I would like to thank my wife and three kids for their love and support. A news release from the city noted that those who recommended Beck cited his dependability and strong character growing with each new role, as well as his self-motivation and drive to take on tasks without having to be asked. Beck is currently pursuing a Master's of Science in Fire Executive Leadership with a focus on public administration from Columbia Southern University, according to the release. He also has a Bachelor of Arts in Natural History, Interpretation from the University of Northern Iowa, and completed Hawkeye Community College Paramedic and EMTB programs. We're looking forward to William Beck assuming that another leadership role with, with Waterloo Fire Rescue, this time as its fire chief. From firefighter, paramedic, medical officer, lieutenant, battalion chief, to now fire chief, he has truly risen through the ranks in the department. Beck is a well-respected among his peers and will continue to build on the accomplishments of his predecessors, Mayor Quinton Hart said in a statement. Councilmember-elect Berlinda Creighton-Smith also will be sworn in to her fourth ward seat during the same ceremony as Beck. Let's move on to a national article. Will it take a market crash for Congress to raise the debt limit? There's one way to force President Joe Biden and Congress to solve the looming crisis over debt over the debt limit, a financial market crash. That's a view held by several economists and a former White House official mindful that Congress rarely acts unless an emergency forces lawmakers to do. For that drama not ending in tragedy, key actors have to play their roles, said Dalip Singh, who is Biden's national security advisor for international economics and deputy director for, of the National Economic Council. Market participants have led a role of playing the victim. They have to produce pain. They have to produce a sea of red on their Bloomberg screens because politicians need to look at those screens. Republicans and Democrats have been dancing around each other around about the need to raise the government's legal borrowing authority. Biden tried to edge closer on Thursday by releasing his budget plan that cuts deficits by a $1.29 trillion over 10 years, an offer that House, that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, quickly dismissed as woefully insufficient. Republicans in the House Freedom Caucus on Friday proposed their own demands, which the White House quickly rejected. This fandango could, could persist for several more months until the last possible moment when the federal government would hit a, a currently unknown X date, possibly as early as June, and be unable to pay its bills, possibly setting off a default that would suddenly wash away millions of jobs. It is a familiar ritual, but every other time before, Congress has found agreement on the debt limit. The question now, in a period of ever-increasing pol political polarization, is whether today is different. Every single major economic institution, conservative or liberal, says that, says that will cause a massive recession, a massive recession, and put us in the hole for a long time, Biden said of the possible default that he rolled out his budget in Philadelphia. McCarthy has promised to put together his own budget plan, but has little urgency for striking any kind of deal 
so long as the stock market stays relatively calm. He has said that he wants an agreement to put the government on a path towards a balanced budget. But he has also ruled out tax increases or cuts to Social Security and Medicare, which would force deep and controversial reductions in federal spending that could divide House Republicans. Biden, who would reduce deficits largely through higher taxes on wealthy and corporations, has said that he is ready to go through budget agreements line by line once McCarthy has his numbers. But McCarthy's leverage is, the McCarthy's leverage is greatest at the X date, approaches, as it approaches, at some point this summer, and markets are biding their time. So, for, so far this year, the S&P 500 stock index has been positive. It has largely swung based on, the move, based on moves by the Federal Reserve to lower inflation, or with the collapse Friday of the Silicon Valley Bank, events that are separate from the debt ceiling. There is a widening recognition that a massive sell-off tied to debt limit, debt limit tensions would provide instant clarity and snap everyone out of their ideological stagnancy. No one is rooting for the markets to sink, but as Republicans' lawmakers weigh the possibility of prioritizing repayments to debt holders, a risky short-term fix, there is a sense that markets need to, join, to jolt Congress into action. Unfortunately, it will likely take a significant financial market event for Biden and the GOP to arrive at a compromise on the debt ceiling, said Joe, Joe Musaralas, chief economist at the consultancy RSM US, who, has, who said that the standoff is already increasing the cost of borrowing for small and medium-sized companies. Analysts at Morgan Stanley a few weeks ago concluded that the most likely catalyst to an agreement would be the markets expressing their fear of the political and economic repercussions of default. When lawmakers realize they can step, it, step in with a deal and play the hero to salvage everyone's retirement savings, they will have an incentive to come together, said Singh, who spoke at a New York conference two weeks ago. They have to be able to say, look... I am reluctantly agreeing to pay for spending that we've already authorized because I'm saving the 401ks of hardworking families across the country, Singh said. I think that complacency is itself a big problem. There is a, there's precedent for market crashes forcing Congress's hand. During the 2008 financial crisis, the House rejected a $700 billion bailout package on September 29th, leading the Dow Jones Industrial Average to plunge about 7% in a single day. That dramatic sell-off ultimately laid out the stakes for Congress, and the rescue package passed the House within days and became law. And And there are those who think that Congress might not take the path that would trigger a market revolt. Rohit Kumar, a former aide to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, said that a market drop would move the needle on a debt limit, but it's not a prerequisite for getting an agreement. The vast majority of lawmakers understand that this has to be done, said Kumar, now an executive at the tax consultancy, PwC. Defaulting on our debt is an entirely different animal, a bell that cannot be unrung, and I think that most members appreciate that. The Senate Budget Committee Chairman, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, has said that Republicans will only seek a deal with their richest donors. Start to sense the reverberations of a potential default and start making phone calls saying, okay, you guys, enough of this clowning around. 
given that forecasts already exist about a million of uh, exist about millions of jobs potentially lost, White House acknowledged that he didn't know why the phone calls from Republican donors aren't already starting. Maybe they're not feeling the tremors yet, he said. Now let's move on to the article, Women Missing in Mexico After Crossing from Texas on Trip. Two sisters from Texas and a friend are missing in Mexico after they crossed the border last month to sell clothes at a flea market, U.S. authorities said Friday. The abduction of four Americans in Mexico was caught on video March 3rd, received an avalanche of attention, and was resolved in a matter of days, but the fate of the three women who haven't been heard from in two weeks remains a mystery and garnered relatively little publicity. The FBI said Friday that it is aware that two sisters from Panitas, a small border city in Texas near McAllen, and their friend have gone missing. Panitas, police Police Chief Roel Bermia said that their families have been in touch with the Mexican authorities who are investigating their disappearance. Beyond that, officials in the U.S. and Mexico haven't said much about their pursuit of Maritza Trinidad Perez Rios, 47, Marina Perez Rios, 48, and their friend Dora Alicia Cervantes Senez, 53. The episode starts... The episode stands in dark contrast to the government and media frenzy over the abduction of four Americans on a road trip to Mexico for plastic surgery. They were caught in a drug cartel shootout on the border city of Mamatmoros, and a video showing them being hauled off in a pickup truck. The two survivors were found Tuesday in a wooden shack near the Gulf Coast. U.S. Customs and Border Protection says that the three women crossed into Mexico on February 24th, a Friday. Panitas is just a few hundred feet from the Rio Grande River. One of the women's husbands spoke to her by phone while she was traveling to Mexico, the police chief said, but grew concerned when he couldn't reach her afterwards. Since he couldn't make contact over the weekend, he came in that Monday and reported it to us, Bermia said. The three women haven't been heard from since. Romeo said that the women were traveling in a green mid-1990s Chevy Silverado to a flea market in the city of Montemoros in Nouveau Leon State. It's about a three-hour drive from the border. Officials at the state prosecutor's office said that they have been investigating the women's disappearance since Monday. This week's massive search for the four kidnapped Americans involved a squad of Mexican soldiers and National Guard troops. But for the most of the 112,000 Mexicans missing nationwide, the only ones looking for them are their desperate relatives. Authorities say that the lack of manpower, equipment, and training things uh, things are so bad that authorities aren't even able to identify tens of thousands of bodies that have been found. Now let's move on to... Panel predicts drop in state revenue. Revenues expected to be 1% below 2023. The state of Iowa estimated revenue for the current budget year improved slightly from December, but it is still expected to be below last year as 2022 tax cuts take effect. And in the 2024 fiscal year, which begins on July 1st, revenues are expected to be about 1% below 2023. The figures were set out on Friday by the Revenue Estimating Conference, a panel that meets every quarter to project state revenues. 
Iowa lawmakers will soon begin the process of crafting the budget for next fiscal year using projections from the panel. The panel estimated Iowa's net revenue for fiscal 2023 will be around $9.75 billion, a 0.5% drop from $9.8 billion in 2022, but it's an increase from the $9.62 billion the group estimated in December. The year-over-year reduction was expected as tax cuts passed by Republicans in 2022, especially the elimination of retirement income tax, take effect. But Craig Paulson, the director of the Iowa Department of Revenue and Department Management, said that other taxes, particularly sales tax, have come in strong, boosting the predictions for the year. The state of Iowa continues to be on strong financial footing, and I see no reason to expect that to change into the foreseeable future, Paulson said. In fiscal year 2024, the panel expected the state's revenue to drop $9.6 billion, also due largely to tax cuts. That's an increase from the December meeting, which estimated fiscal 2024 revenues at $9.63 billion. Lawmakers are required by law to use lower of the two estimates between December and March when crafting the state budget, meaning that they will be working with the $9.63 billion figures from December. Last year's, last year's tax reduction signed into law by Governor Kim Reynolds will lower the highest tax bracket over the next three years until all Iowa taxpayers pay a flat 3.9% rate on their income. Taxes on retirement income were, est- were eliminated, and the corporate income tax will continue to fall if corporate tax revenues hit certain benchmarks, resulting in an expected reduction of $1.9 billion from the state budget. The impacts of last year's tax cuts are starting to show up, in particular in withholdings revenues, but even still, the state is in a very strong revenue position, Paulson said. The Revenue Estimating Conference is a three-member panel made up of Paulson, Jennifer Acton, and from Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency, and David Underwood, an economist from Mason City. In a statement on Friday, a Republican Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver said of Grimes said the projection confirms that Republicans are keeping the state's economy strong while cutting taxes. With a projection of nearly $2.7 billion in taxpayer relief fund and an ending balance of more than $1.7 billion in fiscal year 2023, Iowa is undoubtedly the strongest financial position the state has ever been, Whitfer said. Despite the sky is falling claims from Democrats, the future in Iowa has never been brighter. As of December, the Legislative Decession Legislative Services Agency has estimated Iowa's 2023 ending surplus would be $1.6 billion, and Friday's estimates would be would bring that number higher. But Democrats said that the numbers show lackluster growth and that tax cuts are only benefiting the wealthy corporations. Legislature needs to focus on issues like lowering costs and raising wages. Instead, the GOP lawmakers have been too focused on politics this session, said Republican Timmy Brown Powers, or Representative Timmy Brown Powers of Waterloo, the ranking member of the House Appropriations Committee. As they continue working on bills that will drive more Iowans out of state and make Iowa look unwelcoming, it's time to get this session back on track and focus on doing what's best for Iowans again. Now on to a more fun article. 
Sports show draws crowds ready for outdoor recreation. People attending the 47th annual Eastern Iowa Sports Show were treated to the ear-splitting sound of wood-splintering chainsaws as lumberjacks competed Saturday. Competitive lumberjack Andrew Serpico and Tim Knutson raced with with both muscle-powered crosscut saws and souped-up chainsaws called hot saws slicing through logs. They also dashed across floating logs as the crowds cheered them on. A lot of times, people may have seen it in the history books or on TV, but not too many people get to see it for themselves. Coming in and getting really close and intimate with the audience has been a good draw for us, said Jamie Fisher of Stillwater, Minnesota, a retired competitor who now runs the Traveling Lumberjack Enterprises show and tours the United States. His family has been involved in the activity for almost a hundred years. My grandpa learned back in the 1930s in Stillwater. It used to be a lumbering town. The lumbering had died, but his buddies were still in the industry. As he grew up, his buddies and him just did it for fun, Fisher said. His grandfather competed and qualified for championships and taught his children. Fisher's father and uncles, who kicked it up a notch. It was a big family tradition. It just went down the family line. I picked it up and loved it and went full-time into competing. Now my kids are dabbling in it, Fisher said. The Lumberjack show will be at noon and 1.30 p.m. Sunday. Sunday hours for the sports show are located at the University of Northern Iowa UNI Dome and neighboring McLeod Center are 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and admission is $10. Exhibitions include retailers selling recreational vehicles and campers, boats, golf carts, all-terrain vehicles, motorcycles, canoes and kayaks, hunting gear, marina equipment, and hot tubs. Darren Sikfen of Crawdaddy Outdoors in Waverly showed off his selection of colorful kayaks. He said sales were high during COVID-19 pandemic as people took to the great outdoors for recreation. Kayak sales have dropped since then, but they remain above pre-pandemic levels. Kayaking business has been good. The show has been really good. It feels like the sports show of, the, of yesteryear. There are crowds of people, Siefkin said. The show has been really good. I'm super impressed with it. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, March 12th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Harold Edward Coplin. Edward Harold Edward Coplin, age 81, of Parkersburg, Iowa, died Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, UH, UPH Allen Memorial Hospital in the Hospice Unit of Waterloo, Iowa, of Natural Causes. Memorial services will be 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, March 14th, 2023, at the Christian Reformed Church with burial in the Oak Hill Cemetery, both in Parkersburg, Iowa. Visitation will be 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Monday at Redmond Funeral and Cremation Services, Parkersburg Funeral Home. Memorials will be directed to the family. William Bill Clapp William Bill Clapp, 77, of Waterloo, died at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital Friday, February 24, 2023. He was born July 21, 1945, in Waterloo, son of William H. and Elner Clapp. Bill attended high school in Waterloo until enlisting in the U.S. Army, where he served for five years. Later, he took classes at Hawkeye Institute of Technology. Bill married Denise 
Widener on September 20th, 22nd, 1972 in Laporte City. He worked for John Deere for 27 years, first in drafting and later as a supervisor until retiring in April of 1999. He enjoyed hunting and fishing. Bill also knew everything about construction and used that knowledge to build the house that Denise and he lived in, as well as a house for both of his daughters. Bill is survived by his wife, Denise of Waterloo, two daughters, Kayla Dutcher and their daughter, Hattie, and Jessica Clapp and her children, Maddox, Owen, and Britton, all of Dunkerton, his brother Tom Clapp of Laporte City, his sister Sally McNally of Evansdale, his brother-in-law Mike Widener and their children, uh, Andy and Lauren of Waterloo. He was preceded in death by his parents. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 18th, 2023, at Lock at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue, with family greeting friends one hour prior to the services at the funeral home. Memorials may be directed to the family. Condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Doris Helen Rogers McCartney. Doris Helena Rogers McCartney, 98, passed away on February 15, 2023, in Waterloo, Iowa. She was born on October 19, 1924, in Oskaloosa, Iowa. A celebration of life was held February 23rd at the Community Church of Deep River, followed by burial at Township Cemetery. Jack Lee Fish Jack Lee Fish, 80, born... August 22, 1942, to Gerald and Ella Fish of Mason City, Iowa, arrived to his Heavenly Father on March 4, 2023. Jack, a resident of Mission, Texas, formerly New Hartford, had a long career with John Deere and Waterloo. Jack was survived by his mom, Ella Fish, wife, Charlie Fish, siblings, Delbert Fish, Gary Fish, Donna Eckerd, daughters, Kathy Miller, Michelle Pice, 12 grandchildren, and 17 great-grandchildren. Jack was preceded in death by his father, Gerald, and his wife, Portia. Celebration of life will be held at New Hartford Methodist Church Saturday, April, 4, April 1st at 11 a.m., 406 Oneida Street. Barbara Jean Cooper Barbara Jean Cooper, 87, of Cedar Falls, died Monday, March 6, 2023, at the Martin Suites of Western Homes Community, Cedar Falls, Iowa. Barbara was born December 15, 1935, in Livermore, Iowa, to the late Edward and Amelia Anderson. She married Donald Cooper on December 19, 1953, in Hampton, Iowa. Barbara worked at Frank's Greenhouse for 13 years and Viking Pump for 23 years before retiring. Barbara and Donald celebrated 37 years of marriage before his death in 1991. She is survived by her sons, Randy Cooper of Scottsdale, Arizona, Tim Cooper of Fishers, Indiana, and Sean Cooper of Littleton, Colorado, 12 grandchildren, Ryan, Eric, Sarah, and Adam Cooper, Jenny Welsh, Clayton Cooper, Keeley Cooper, Ross Cameron, Bryce Farnan, Trent Cooper, Chelsea Cooper, and Kelby Cooper, Six great-grandchildren, Dolores and Parades of Hampton, Iowa, and special friend Colleen Limming, an extended family and friends. 
She was preceded in death by her brother-in-law, Richard Paredes. Faith, family, and friends were the cornerstone of Barbara's life, and she will be remembered as a loving mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. The funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, March 13th, at the Janesville United Methodist Church, 424 Sycamore Street, Janesville, Iowa. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. on Monday at the church. Burial will be held at Oakland Cemetery in Janesville. Dahl Van Hove Shoe Funeral Home is assisting the family with arrangements. Memorials may be directed to the American Heart Association or to the Janesville United Methodist Church. Now, let's move over to the sports section, starting with... College women's basketball. Iowa State women defeat number 14 Sooners in Big 12 semis. Call her humble, differential, or a combination of the two, but one thing is clear. Iowa State's Ashley Jones takes accolades and crowning achievements fully in stride and rarely mentions herself in the process, even when gently coaxed to do so. She's not flippant nor dismissive. It's just that everything she does on the court can be traced back to a lone backyard hoop and wistful childhood dreams. It all goes back to when I was growing up in the backyard, said Jones, who became the 14th player in NCAA women's hit basketball history to score, thir- score 3,000 points in Saturday's 82-72 Big 12 tournament semifinal win over number 14 Oklahoma. You're back there shooting, not really thinking about what you're going to do eventually. Obviously, there was always the dream of playing college basketball, but being able to do it here at Iowa State and be able to do it this successfully has been a huge blessing. The Cyclones, 21-9, and will play top-seeded and 15th-ranked Texas 25-8 and in Sunday's 1 p.m. championship game that will be broadcasted on ESPN2. Jones led all scorers with 22 points and broke the 3,000-point barrier with her first basket of the second half. She now has 3,009 points, or nine fewer than the great Cheryl Miller. Fittingly, Jones is only two-time winner of the Cheryl Miller Award, which is is bequeathed annually to the nation's best small forward. Ash is a very hard worker, said Cyclone teammate Namar Diu, who scored 19 points and went four for six for a three-point line. We see it day in, day out, so she's definitely deserving of this, so congrats, Ash. Dew's second-highest scoring output of her career broke broke a string of five straight games in which she failed to reach double figures. And speaking of being differential, she was slated to start in the second half after shining off the bench in the first, but she demurred, insisting that senior Morgan Kane should maintain her starting slot. Right before the second half, she walked up to me and said, Coach, Mo should start. I'd rather come off the bench if that's okay with you, said ISU head coach Bill Fennelly, whose team seeks its first Big 12 tournament title since 2001. I'm like, yeah, I was a little stunned and very proud. Dew scored 11 of her points in the first half as the Cyclones turned an early 8-point deficit into a 42-39 halftime lead. Lexi Darnarski added 20 points on 4 for 
on 7 for 11 shooting for ISU, which is in the conference title game for the first time since 2019. DU gives an extra perimeter option because of the way they defend, Fennelly said. She hit a, a couple early and really had one of those games. The best kind, the Cyclones led by as many as 17 points in the second half, but they needed to fend off a late Oklahoma charge that slashed their lead to 6 at 70-64, with 4 minutes and 24 seconds left. Jones responded with a put-back basket, and Dew drilled her fourth three-pointer to give ISU breathing room down the stretch. We feel really good right now, Joan said. We're going to get back to the hotel, get our schedule for tomorrow, and just get ready to go. With 3,000 points in tow, you're on a list of 14 people to do some, to ever do something, Finally said. That's pretty impressive. Another college women's basketball article. Belmont pulls away late to top UNI in MVC semifinal. Belmont had to earn its way into the championship game of the Missouri Valley Conference Women's Basketball Tournament Saturday. Northern Iowa gave the Bruins little choice. The third-seeded Panthers pushed the tournament's second seed to the limit before dropping a 69-62 semifinal game at the Vibrant Arena at the mark. They challenged us. They pushed us. I thought that Northern Iowa played really well, Belmont coach Bart Brooks said. It was one of those games where whoever put together a run late was going to win it, and we were able to be that team. After Maya McDermott hit two free throws to pull you and I within 58 and 57 with two minutes, 10 seconds remaining, the second-seeded Bruins outscored the Panthers 11-5 to the rest of the way to advance to the hoops in the Heartland final as the first conference member. In Belmont will face Drake, a team it splits two games against during its regular season, in Sunday's 1 p.m. championship game, where the league's automatic NCAA tourney berth will be on the line. We're looking forward to having a chance to compete again as the as a team and play for their championship, Brooks said. The Bruins secured that, op- that opportunity at the foul line, finishing off a 14-of-6 game at the line by hitting all eight they attempted in the final three minutes, including six straight to pull away from the 61-58 lead Belmont carried in the final minute. They made a few plays down the stretch, got a few big rebounds that made the difference, McDermott said. None of the shots were bigger than the three-pointer Sidney Harvey hit from the left corner, with one minute and 43 seconds remaining, to extend the Bruins' lead to 61-57 and fuel Mikkel, and fuel Belmont's late run. We have a lot of players step up in the final minutes of this game. Destiny Wells certainly did her part, but it took but it was a team effort that was exactly what we needed, Brooks said. Sydney hit a huge three, Kylan McGuff, Madison Bartley, and some big players. In a tight game, they all played a role in getting the job done. Wells finished with a game-high 28 points, including hitting a free throw to finish off a three-point play with three minutes and 39 seconds remaining, which pushed the Bruins ahead to stay at 56 and 55. She scored nine of her points from that spot on to keep the Panthers at arm's length. She is quick, a good handler, and is a hard guard, McDermott said. 
you and I came after Belmont from each from every direction during the game's opening minutes. Four different Panthers attempted and connected on shots from a three-point range on you and I's first four possessions of the game, leading to one quick timeout by Brooks. As you and I continued to fire away from three, six Panthers contributed to you and I's collection of seven three-pointers in the opening quarter. Belmont worked its way back into the game from its early 12-3 deficit. We wanted to come out and push the pace, said McDermott, who joined Emerson Green in leading you and I with 15 points apiece. We wanted to run, get things good, get things going at a good pace for us. The Bruins, Wells, and Blair Schuwald hit back-to-back three-pointers to even the score at 15-15, to but the first of Green's career-high tying four points four three-point baskets kept you and I in front 21 to 19 after one quarter. They came out and really attacked. We just had to settle ourselves down and play our game, Wells said. Once we did that, we gave ourselves a chance. A string of baskets by McDermott, Grace Bolifi, and Kaiba Laube had the Panthers in front 34 to 28, but a three-pointer by McGuff fueled a run of 12 unanswered points over the final four minutes of the second quarter that left McBelmont in front 38-34 to at halftime. McDermott scored the first four points of the third quarter as you and I tied the game, but could never find a lead until Green knocked down a three-pointer to open the fourth quarter and give the Panthers a 50-49 to advantage. You and I coach Tanya Warren liked where her team was at heading into the final minutes of play, but felt the way the game was called... But but felt the way the game was called changed down the stretch. I thought with three minutes to go, how things were called changed, Warren said. I'm not saying it was a good change or a bad change, just a change. Now likely headed to the WNIT, the Panthers, 21-9, and had their opportunities at the line in the final minutes as well, but hit just three of seven attempts in the final one minute and five seconds. I'm proud of how we battled, not just... Now, but all season, Warren said. This team forced a lot of adversity, more than people will will ever appreciate, and they continued to compete and finish one game out for a first to get to the semifinals here. I'm proud of them. Bofali collected her conference-leading 13th double-double of the season. The sophomore from North Scott finished with 11 points and a game-high 13 rebounds. Now on to college wrestling. UIU's Luzeman wins national title. Upper Iowa Chase Luzeman became the 17th national champion in program history Saturday at the Alliant Energy Powerhouse. Scoring a 9-7 victory over Hunter Mullen of Western Colorado, Luzeman capped off an incredible postseason by standing on top of the 165-pound podium. First thing I love, first thing is I love my teammates, I love my coaches, I love my friends, and I love my family, Luzeman said. Other than that, this has been a long time coming. Am I surprised by this happened? No, not really. I've been super disciplined my entire life, and this is a product of it, and I'm looking to do the same thing next year. Luzenman is the UIU's first champion since Josh Walker won in 2018. 
last time the program hosted in a Division II championships. Luzerman advanced to the finals with a 8-2 victory over Ty Lucas of Central Oklahoma. This is his moment right now. This is Chase Luzenman up on the stage, said head coach Heath Grimm prior to the finals. He's representing himself, his family, his hometown of Monticello, Iowa. He is representing Upper Iowa University, representing us, every coaches, every teammate that trains with him. So that's what's going on right now. Luzenman's semifinal match was a rematch from two years ago when the two squared off in the quarterfinals, that match ending in Lucas's favor. However, Luzenman has grown since then. Personally, I think that I wrestled poorly my first time, uh, first time I wrestled him. I knew that this time would be different, he said. I can't predict the outcome, but I can predict my effort, and that's just what I did there. I gave it all my effort, and it turned out in my favor. Central Oklahoma ended up clinching the Division II title over overall with 113 points going into the finals. However, Grimm said that hosting the school said the hosting school could take pride in one of their athletes getting a moment in the spotlight. Maybe take a step back, and that's what's cool about it from the perspective is that we're hosting the tournament. There's, tw- there's only 20 kids wrestling tonight, and we got one of them, Grimm added. That's outstanding. Luzenman was joined by teammates Tate Murdy, who finished 8th at 141, and Coulter Bai in the same place at 184 as All-Americans. Rick Hartzell, vice president of athletics for Upper Iowa, also commented on the success the Peacocks enjoyed over the weekend, achieving their best national outgoing in five years, the best national outing in five years. We're proud of those guys, Coulter and Tate and Chase, so happy they're having success, Hartzell said before the match. We've had a great wrestling program over the years. Heath Grimm does a great job coaching them up. So really thrilled they've advanced this far and hoping we can get a national champion out of chase here. Even more college wrestling. New article, though. Mulder and Dean win titles. Warburg takes second. As a team, it was not the tournament Warburg College wanted to have at the Division Three Wrestling Championships at the Berglund Center in Roanoke, Virginia, Saturday. But it was. But at the end of the weekend, the Knights had something to be happy about. Junior Zane Mulder captured the 48th Individual National Championship with a 7-5 victory over Jared Stricker of Wisconsin-Euclair in the 174-pound championship match. I've dreamt of that moment since I was a little kid, jumping into my dad's arm after winning a national championship, Mulder said. Family members are allowed to sit mat side during championship matches. The feeling is so surreal right now. There's so many people to thank. I just can't put it into words right now. Mulder fell behind early to Stricker, 2-1 to one after period 1, and then after he scored a takedown with a minute and 26 left in the second, Stricker, Stricker reversed him for a lead of 5-3. to three. An escape with 59 seconds left, and then a takedown with 24 seconds left in the second period gave Mulder a 6-5 lead after two periods. He escaped just 8 seconds into the third, and despite a flurry of action over the final two minutes on both wrestlers' parts, no scoring was had, and Mulder was crowned a champion. Masuma and Dean made it twice 
as Sweet with a 10-6 win over Coy Spooner of the U.S. Coast Guard Academy to win the 197-pound title. And Dean twice scored takedowns and took Spooner to his back in the first period to build an 8-1 lead. I'm from Dallas, Texas. I haven't been home in eight months, and Dean said, thinking about this moment all year. That victory lifted the Knights to a national runner-up status as it vaulted them past Baldwin Wallace by one point, 67.5 to 66. Augsburg's university captured its 14th national title as the Augies led wire-to-wire winning for the second team in four years at Roanoke. Augsburg finished with 101 points. Augsburg finished with seven All-Americans, including one champion, and in one of the most unique championship matches in Division III history, Rhode Island College's Nathan Lackman edged his brother, Matt Lackman, of Alverna University to win at 165. Nathan scored with one minute and 57 seconds left in sudden victory to win the battle over the brothers, to win the battle of the brothers three to one and win his second consecutive title. In another unusual championship match, in a a battle of unseated wrestlers, Sam Stuhl and Augsburg's beat Ethan Harstead of Wheaton College 5-1 to win at 141. During the morning session, Mulder and Endine earned their final appearances. Mulder was in complete control of his 174 semifinal against Oswego State Charlie's... Oswego State's Charlie Gregus... He scored with 35 seconds left in the first and rode out Grigas in the second and then used a quick escape in the third to build a 3-0 lead with a ride time with the ride time point tacked on won 4-0 for his 100th career victory. And Dean, a junior in college, national runner-up at last Iowa last year at Iowa Lakes, scored a 2-1 win over Tyler Hanna of Wisconsin Platteville in the semifinals. The difference was stalling a point issued was stalling point issued by against Hannah midway through the third period. He also had been warned for stalling in the first period. Trailing by twenty one and a half points after day one, Warburg needed to be near perfect on Saturday in order to potentially chase down Augsburg. That proved that proved difficult to accomplish. It started off good when Zarin Terukina won his third consecutive consolation match, beating Josh Wilson of Greensboro 3-1 in a sudden victory at 141. But Augsburg, despite taking a couple of hits on the consolation side, continued to shine. Unseeded, Sam Stuhl reached the 141 finals with, six to three, with a 6-3 win over the second-seeded Jacob Reed of Ohio Northern. Then, in a critical head-to-head match at 157 and 165, Wartburg fell short. Augie Tyler Shilson dominated David Hollinsworth 13-0 in a 157 semifinal. Then, in a 165 consolation match, Cooper Wills of Augsburg used a third-period ride to beat the Knights' Nathan Fuller 2-0. Those two losses effectively knocked Wartburg out of the, const- of the contention, for the team title that put Augsburgs near the finish line of its 14th title. Terukina and Hollingsworth each finished 6th, while Fuller won its final match of the tournament to win 7th at 165. After losing in the semifinals to defending champion Jarrett Schinholster of Wisconsin-Whitewater, 
Luther College's Donovan Korn won back-to-back consolation matches, including a 7-1 decision over Bentley Schwanbeck, Osterman of Augsburg, to finish third at 184. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, March 12th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.